0: Even with fiction, there are things that I've written that have made me physically ill in the writing, where I've had to like stop and throw up. Like, just it's uh, writing can be a very physical and visceral act, and um, it's it's good to take that into account and good to talk about these things. I think.
1: I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Esme Wang is the author of the novel, The Border of Paradise, and the much-awarded best-selling essay collection, The Collected Schizophrenias, which chronicles her years-long experience with schizophrenia, PTSD, and chronic illness. She has received the Whiting Award and was named a Best Young American Novelist by Granta Magazine. And as of this year, she's also the creator of the Unexpected Shape Community, an online space for writers and artists living with chronic illness and disability. Uh, We're going to pop more information about that into the show notes for anyone who's curious about joining. Esme came on to talk about so many things, imposter syndrome, illness, how hard a physical and emotional task it can be to write about difficult life experiences, the limitations of writing with chronic illness, and lots more. Here's Esme Way
0: the Collective schizophrenias is, is the book that most people know me for it was the book that was a new york times bestseller and it's the book that um kind of uh, made my name i guess even though i had published a novel before it and um, I I, feel, I think of myself primarily as a fiction writer, and so I was actually just doing an event yesterday where I was the most honest about nonfiction writing, and it was kind of wildly embarrassing to be so honest about it, but it was also kind of freeing to say that I have an immense sense of imposter syndrome when it comes to both nonfiction writing and the collective schizophrenia in particular, which is to say that I went to an MFA program, but and I don't think that you have to be an M to to get an MFA to write. But in my case, uh, my MFA was in fiction, so I never thought that I would write nonfiction. I took one nonfiction class when I was at my MFA. I don't think I did particularly well in it. Um, I didn't end up publishing any of the pieces that I wrote in that class. And, uh, yeah, so then I just worked on this novel that I had, um, that had grown from the thesis that I wrote, um, at my MFA program. And so when I kind of fell into writing nonfiction because of, uh, because of certain things that were happening in my life that I wanted to write about, and because I was waiting to see if anybody was going to publish my first novel, it felt like such an accident And then when Grey Wolf picked up the collected schizophrenia, that also felt like such an accident because my my agent at the time wasn't interested in trying to sell the collected schizophrenia. I had approached that agent a number of times with the book. I approached them three times, actually. It was like a fairy tale. I approached them three times um, with various essays, and I kept saying... Would you be interested in this essay collection of books, uh, of essays about schizophrenia? And every time they said no. And finally, um, we had this really fancy lunch. Um, I think I was on my tour for Border of Paradise at the time. We were at this really fancy restaurant and it was across from Grand Central Station. I remember I was, I really felt like this is like where deals are made and there are like these <laughs> fancy business people everywhere. And this was always, this, it felt like what like young as would have dreamt, A uh, an author would, would be doing, you know, um, is having a fancy lunch with their agent, um, at a nice restaurant. And so I was pitching this essay collection again for the third time, um, to my agent at my then agent. And, um, Finally, uh, they just said, no, I I just don't think this is the kind of book that would sell or that I would be interested in trying to sell. And I think you should write this other book. And so they put forth this idea for this other completely different book. And I don't even remember what it was, but I remember they really talked me into it during the course of that lunch. And I walked away thinking, okay, I'm going to write this other book. So in the meantime, um, the gray wolf nonfiction prize had their, uh, one month, uh, deadline. And I happened to have exactly 100 pages, which is what they were asking for. And I just thought, I'm just going to send this without, you know, by myself, I'm not going to have my agent send it. And I, I just sent it. And that was the wild, you know, uh, yeah, I was just trying something. And if they hadn't taken it, it it would have just died on the vine. Like there was no chance of it going anywhere with the agent I had at the time. So um, yeah, it was, so it was an amazing thing that Graywolf took it. And then, so I, I feel like there were so many things that happened. And then the way that I look at it in the, through the lens of my imposter syndrome is very much like, well, this was a book that, hadn't been written and it fills this void in the uh in the genre that that needed to be filled and people just like it and buy it because there are no other books that are like it um not because it's actually that good (laughs) and so this is like this ongoing feeling that I have about the book which um is uh my you know people you know, try to reassure me that it's not the case and that it's silly or whatever. But I, it is kind of a deep down feeling that I have. So I, I continues to feel this imposter syndrome about nonfiction and about uh, the collective schizophrenia in particular. And so this really tied to teaching and this idea of what could I possibly have to teach anybody because I have no idea what I'm doing. I just happened to write this book and I, I bumbled. I really felt like I bumbled my way through my first two books and I, and how am I, how am I a writer? How did this
1: even happen? Um, that makes a lot of sense to me, not because I, I think that you should feel any imposter syndrome based on the qual like it excellent the high 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 quality of both of your your first books but because I know that that's something that a lot of writers feel particularly when they're working outside a genre in which they were trained but i I wonder what about nonfiction feels so materially different to you that you feel so that that the imposter syndrome is is there is like genre specific
0: yeah so i found that writing nonfiction was a completely I think they ultimately realized this was not true, but is the left brain, right brain thing a real thing? Anyway, so I'm I'm just gonna refer to it anyway, um, because I grew up with that idea, (laughs) this conceit um of the left brain, right brain. But I felt like um nonfiction was such a left-brained activity and fiction was such a right-brained activity. And so to write nonfiction, I had to come up with this entirely different way of working. And that's how I, um, that's in some ways, that's why teaching nonfiction, that's how I found my way into teaching nonfiction because I had such a structured way of writing nonfiction I have a, such a specific way of writing nonfiction that is different from writing fiction which in some in many ways I feel like would be much harder to teach because there is something weirdly mystical and organic feeling about the way I write fiction and for me nonfiction feels like a math problem in some ways or a chemistry um solution um Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I I think with nonfiction, it felt very much like I have friends who went to the Iowa nonfiction program or they they really or they went to journalism school or they really, you know, they really got their uh, they really cut their teeth on a certain kind of education or a certain kind of study, whether that was autodidactic or um, through reading lots and lots of nonfiction um or or in classes um that I felt
1: like I was uh always falling behind on. Um That makes sense. So how did how did teaching help help I that? think yeah. So what ended up
0: how the threshold uh how I crossed that threshold into teaching it actually happened because, uh, I started getting asked to come to different places and teach. And so I, um, I I had to come up with something. And so the first thing that came to me was, okay, well, I have this very specific way of writing nonfiction, which is based on this index card system. And I can teach that it's a very structured, specific method. And People seemed to like that as I was traveling and um, going to schools and MFA programs and, you know, different workshop programs. But where it really crossed over into something that I felt excited about and where I was telling myself, I think I've come onto something different from what other people can do is when the pandemic started. Um, what ended up happening was that I wasn't able to travel anymore because, you know, with the pandemic. And so I started to think about what I could do to make money instead of traveling. So I had been, you know, primarily uh, I just signed with a speaking agency and I had been um doing a lot of speaking, public speaking and teaching and things like that and making most of my income that way. But I started teaching online and I realized that a lot of the things that had been limitations for me when I was traveling in person, such as Um, becoming fatigued really easily, or having mobility issues, needing wheelchairs at airports, needing wheelchairs on campus at schools, not being able to teach for long periods of time because I become fatigued really quickly. These were potentially assets when I was teaching online because um, I would have these really short workshops, like an hour and a half, and I would teach something specific about nonfiction where I would teach something that was oriented toward people who also deal with limitations and those people would be attracted to what I was teaching. Um, I can't necessarily do what other writers do. And for example, teach like a three hour long workshop, three nights a week for 10 weeks Um, that's really hard on my body and I don't think it's possible, but I can do something else and that's what I started to do. And then people started becoming interested in it and it became really exciting to find where, um, my interests lay and where people's needs crossed over into my interests.
1: And where was that? What did you what did you start to locate about the teaching or even about what you were interested in craft-wise as as the the shape around the teaching and the thinking changed? Yeah, so I was both teaching stuff that was
0: specifically about living with limitations. So I had this class called Ass Kicking with Limitations, which I taught at Conferences and things like that in person. And then I created an email course, um, about that, um, which is a format that people can really, uh, look to if they're not capable of going to a conference for physical reasons or due to disability or whatnot. Um, and there were also these, uh, craft questions that I found really interesting such as um, one of the later workshops I taught last year was writing personal nonfiction about what hurts which was something that I found challenging when I was working on the collective schizophrenia due to dealing with PTSD and writing about difficult things in my as a collection in particular, that John Doe psychosis essay. And so people who also were dealing with mental health issues, and wanted to write about things that had happened in their lives, or even things that hadn't happened to them directly, but were related to trauma, um, were interested in exploring that. And we're interested in kind of the gentleness that I offered in my classes. I mean, that was an interesting thing that kept coming over and over again in the testimonials that people would give about my workshops was just that there was a lot of gentleness in my teaching. And, um, that I, I really, uh, people would say that I really included, uh, A sense of warmth and gentleness even over Zoom. And so that led to this community that I started building and is now uh, a thing that people can join um, called the Unexpected Shape. And I started opening that up in January 2021 and it's going to be open all year and I'll be teaching workshops, workshops year round, but it's also um, a place where there's co-writing every week and a private Instagram community and all kinds of things built for writers who live with limitations like chronic illness and disability. And I wouldn't have found the idea to kind of build this community for these people, if not for the fact that I started teaching
1: how has this kind of teaching changed your own relationship to writing? has it? It makes me think
0: more about how I do what I do, but I try not to think too much about it when I'm in the middle of doing it, if
1: that makes sense. Um, do you teach? I do yeah, I teach um undergrads and soon to be also teaching graduate students, um, creative writing, creative nonfiction classes. Yeah. Do you think about how you're writing nonfiction as you're writing nonfiction? Mm, Sometimes. Yeah. I think as I'm planning to write, there's, there's the part, of writing, at least for me, where I'm actually putting words on the page. And then there's the part of writing where I'm getting ready to sit down or I'm walking around, you know, making dinner or something thinking about, okay, what do I, what do I want this to be doing? What approach do I want to be taking? And in that, in those moments, I think I am thinking of thinking about form and structure and the act of how nonfiction is created and its methods. And that's, I guess that to me feels like part part of writing, but it's not usually the moment like when I'm sitting in front of the Word document.
0: Right. I think there's something kind of special about sitting in front of the Word document or in my case, lying in bed with the iPad mini and Scrivener um, and tapping out uh, whatever I'm working on that I I can't think about it too much when I'm, Drafting, but I I do think about it more um, because I'm aware that um, I'm aware that something is happening during the sleight of hand, and I want to know what it is. Um, I think that if I ever decide to teach more about fiction and fiction writing, which Nobody is asking me to teach fiction writing these days. Uh, but my next book is a novel um, that will be coming out whenever. Um, so we'll see if that changes. But so far, I've I've only been asked to teach nonfiction. So I I tend to pay more attention to how I'm doing that and it's interesting to me
1: yeah there is this mom there's this there's this thing that happens when you're standing in front of or sitting in front of or zooming in front of a a classroom full of people who are asking you how to asking you how you do the thing that you do that makes you go oh shit how do I do that thing right like because a lot of a lot of The technical aspects are learned, but some of them are just, they're learned and then forgotten because you've turned them into some kind of maybe what you would call muscle memory. And others, you never really consciously learned. They just started happening as you were working. Uh, And teaching invites or forces you to go back and try to Devise a system or a rubric for something that doesn't feel totally systematic as you're as you're doing it anymore, at least.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that sometimes it can be a little bit dangerous to try and force some kind of system or rubric when one doesn't exist. Um, it reminds me of uh, my my husband and I have very different approaches to grammar. Uh, he was he went to a Jesuit schools when he was growing up, and so he has a very rigorous grammatical education that, that originates from Latin. And so when I was an editor and a copy editor at a startup company, I would often ask him why Certain things were grammatical or not grammatical, and he would be able to tell me because of such and such a rule or because of this or that reason. And to me, so much of what feels grammatical originates from reading because it sounds right. And I think that is something that comes as well uh, when it comes to writing so much of I think my improvement as a writer, if I can deign to say that I'm improving as a writer, um, or one hopes that one is improving as a writer along uh along one's career, is that I'm reading more. Um or that I, I keep reading as I keep writing. And so I'm absorbing all of this stuff and it's kind of ambiently coming out um, in the same way that, um, grammatical language comes out. Um, I'm learning how things fit together or how shapes of different kinds of essays might, um, might look. Whereas in the beginning, uh, I might've had only a couple of different forms of essays or a couple of really, go-to kind of uh, ways of structuring things or a couple of go-to ways of exploring ideas. Um, And hopefully I'm continuing to expand those as I read more and as more
1: comes to me through reading and through thinking. I don't know if you get um, stage fright when you're teaching or getting ready to teach, but I do. And sometimes I have this impulse to be like, just, just read the the book that I told you to read is the teaching. Like I have nothing else (laughs) to tell you, you know, like the, like reading is the best thing you could possibly do. Like there's nothing, nothing I can say to you is going to be more important than just reading, reading and reading and reading. Um, which is a good which I kind of believe actually um not that I don't believe that teaching is is valuable or you know I think it has its role in helping people become better writers but I really relate to that but like
0: in my MFA program I talk about um you know I had like various professors uh that I admired or whatnot but what really taught me out of that program uh which was I was at the University of Michigan. Um, what really taught me out of that program, though, was when I entered that program, they had just dropped their language requirements. So they used to have this foreign language requirement. And when I arrived, they were trying out this new requirement, which was a reading exam. And so they had this reading list, and there were a certain number of books for each era. and this was really amazing to me because I had been a really idiosyncratic reader throughout my youth. Um, I am the daughter of immigrants. And so my parents um, didn't, uh, you know, they had a different set of classics that they had read. Um, and so I didn't, I, I would just go to the library and and grab whatever looked interesting. And that often means that books that I loved as a younger person are very random books that nobody else has heard of. Um, so when I got that reading list, that was the first time that I was introduced to like Anna Kernina or Moby Dick or um, Bleak House or these books that. Um, that really taught me a lot. Um, I, I, I'm i so glad and so grateful that I had to read those books for the reading exam. I'm not that happy about the reading exam itself. It was very stressful. <laughs> um, but I uh, I had to read like, I don't know, 20 to 30 books. And it was the experience of reading those books and reading Anna Karen and I and going, wow, like this is an example of psychological interiority that I've never seen before. And I want to do something as cool as what Tolstoy is doing here.
1: Um, yeah,
0: so I, I totally agree with you there.
1: Is there something that your students tend to ask you to teach them how to do? Is it, do you feel like you're frequently called upon to teach a particular skill or idea? it's
0: interesting because I find that often what students really want is not really a skill or idea. It's more like, uh, can you teach me how to have permission or can you teach me how to not be afraid to write, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, which is, which is a very big, thing. It's not something that I can be like, oh, well, you know, you tap your foot on, on the floor three times and then turn around twice and say, you know, abracadabra, and then you'll, you won't be afraid to write about your mom and how she was mean to you, you know? <laughs> um, it, it's, uh, it's interesting how a lot of the, the the big questions that I get are psychological ones or ones that are about permission um how do i how do i trust myself or how do i um how do i not worry about what my family will think or um how do i not worry about hurting people's feelings things like that um i don't know do you do you find the same thing or a similar thing
1: yeah in a way though the thing that i'm thinking right now is like do you <laughs> do you yourself feel permission? Do you yourself feel not afraid? Like, sometimes I feel like um, students ask teachers to know how to do something that the teachers themselves have not yet learned for themselves or are still learning for themselves how to do.
0: Yeah, so I, I just try to be very honest about how I have figured out the components of what they're asking. So... I am not necessarily unafraid, but I have workarounds. So I have different rules about how I write about different people in my life. So, you know, with my husband, I uh, go about writing about him in a certain, in a certain way that is different than how I write about my mo- my mom. Um, and I ask, per- I have asked permission from my mother Um regarding, uh, certain things that I've wanted to write about. Um, and, and once she said no, um, and I, then I just completely did not write the piece. So, um, I have different guidelines for myself. Um, and then I just tell my students what I do and not to say, this is how you should do it, but to say, this is how I figured out how I wanted to do it. And, and um sometimes it's just useful to see how somebody else does it.
1: How do you? And now I feel like I'm just gonna to present to you a question your students probably present to you, but I'm curious how as someone who writes about um things that hurt to use your language um, or things that are personal, things that are hard about illness. Um, how have you navigated th- feelings of fear or of resistance to self, self-disclosure or just of anxiety about the stakes of, of writing about things that are hard, the things that are vulnerable?
0: I think one thing is that, uh, is that I am very clear with myself that there are some things that are hard, that have been hard in my life, that are very painful, that I completely give myself permission to never write about. And I think that given my online persona and the way that I am on social media, I think people sometimes get, might get the idea that I write about everything or that I, um, th- that I tell everything and that's, com- that's very much not the case. And I don't think that's the case with most writers. Um, there are so many things that I keep, um, per private or personal. Um, and, uh, I often joke, but it's not really a joke. I often joke that I'm the most honest in my fiction, Because that's where I can hide things. (laughs) Um, That's where I can hide things the best. Um, But yeah, uh, so first I give myself permission to not write about certain things. And that makes me feel free about the choices that I've made to write about certain other things. So because I don't write about A and I've decided to write about B, I do feel a certain amount of agency over writing about B and it's not that it's easy to write about the things that I've written about. Um, like I said, I think John Doe psychosis was probably the hardest essay to write uh, just in terms of emotional trauma. <laughs> um <laughs> In The Collective schizophrenia, it wasn't the hardest essay technically to write. Um, but I had to go through hundreds of pages of journals to write that essay. And there was a lot of stuff that was hard to relive and to think about and old emails. And I think, you know, I've talked to other writers who have written maybe not essay collections, but memoir. I'm thinking about one friend in particular who wrote a memoir that had a lot of traumatic stuff in it. And my friend was telling me about just nightmares, like constant nightmares and a lot, a lot of PTSD and stuff like that. And I think that's also a reality that, um, that, would be nice to talk about um and it's not i think that you don't have to write about things that make you have PTSD all the time um or make you have nightmares all the time but you also want to be able to process uh that process of writing uh if you are having that experience
1: Yeah, I think that's something that's not discussed nearly as much as it could or should be. The, the psychological or emotional tax that's taken on a writer, if they are writing about something that, you know, a period of their life or an experience that they had that was really, you know, really hard for them or involved some amount of suffering or trauma, um, that revisiting that in writing is itself a little bit of a, I don't even know what the word is, is, uh, is its own trial,
0: Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've definitely, this is not, uh, even with fiction, there are things that I've written that have made me physically ill in the writing um, where I've had to like, stop and throw up like just it's um yeah it's a very uh, writing can be a very physical and visceral act and um it's it's good to take that into account and good to talk about these things I think
1: I guess I wonder what you think the stakes of that conversation are in your teaching or just in you know, discourse among writers in general, like what could shift or would shift if we, if that conversation was more explicit and more common? I would love if that conversation happened For
0: I don't know exactly why it doesn't. I wonder if people are afraid it will turn people off of writing. I wonder if people feel like it's too, personal or private to talk about. I wonder if people think that it exposes too much of the process. I wonder if it's too hard to talk about. I mean, maybe it's traumatic to talk about how traumatic it is. Um, But I, yeah, I've, I've had this conversation with very few people and I think that people I think that writers could feel much less lonely in what is already a fairly lonely vocation, if there were more conversations about not just, how do you start an essay? How do you end an essay? How do you structure an essay?" Um, but what how do the emotional stakes of an essay affect your sleep? Um, you know?
1: Yeah, or even how do you take care of yourself while you're writing? While you're writing, yes. whatever the thing is.
0: Yeah, I talk about I talked about that in the writing nonfiction about what hurts, um, workshop. There are some things that I do where um, there. If I'm writing about something really difficult, it can help to have a specific smell associated with that particular essay or that particular um section of something just so I can like open it and close it and let it let it be by itself and not follow me around all day. Um yeah, just like these kind of really self-care fo- foundational self-care things. I mean, drinking a lot of water, making sure that you're feeding yourself, things like that. It's um and I also just really recommend therapy if people can afford therapy or if it's um something that they can get through uh for example um black women can get i think uh help in terms of funds through the loveland foundation um but yeah it's 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 hard to write about hard things and i think it's important to take care of the animal body of yourself while you're um, putting your brain through its paces.
1: Mm. One of the things that we, that you wrote a little bit about in our email exchange was, I think you invoked the word community and the way mm-hmm. that teaching for you has been about f- finding and and maybe creating a sustaining community. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the way that you think community and the role of a community of creative people relates to this idea of making art that is about things that hurt or is just honest um, and that kind of requires taking care of yourself while you make it.
0: I mean, that's the really lovely thing that ended up forming the Unexpected Shape community which is still growing but already has a good number of people in it. I noticed that there were people who kept coming back to the workshops. Um I think there were some people who were just like I want to take every workshop that you teach no matter what it's about. Um I think that I could I could see that there were people who were reappearing in the chat box and were having these conversations and they would linger after the workshop in the same way that people (laughs) will linger after class in a classroom (laughs) and and hang out and talk to the professor or the teacher or whatnot, lecturer, and we would just kind of hang out in the Zoom. I mean, Zoom, people have Zoom fatigue, but I think also... There is this opportunity for community now that we're all um, or that many of us are at home. I feel like this has been the case for a long time for people who are primarily housebound uh, with illness or disability. And... So there are many opportunities to kind of see one another and recognize one another in these online spaces and to to form what I feel like are very genuine communities, these genuine online communities that share things like wanting to write, being ambitious about writing, having limitations dealing with those limitations, kind of struggling with those limitations and wanting to fit all those things together. And to kind of get into a little bit, the name of the community, the unexpected shape refers to the boundaries of our lives that we may not anticipate, but that form how we move around and exist in the world um and that's something that i keep coming back to over the years
1: mm. that feels like such a good <laughs> such a strong metaphor <laughs> and one <laughs> and one that like Uh, of course makes so much sense for, uh, as a, like, as a descriptor and a metaphor for people who are living and living with and sort of creating with disability or other kinds of like uh, parameters, um, that, that they are negotiating, but it also just feels like a really rich metaphor for, I, I think a lot of people are finding themselves, um, living in an unexpected shape
0: at the yes. moment.
1: Um mm-hmm. and and I guess I'm wondering as like a, a final wrap-up question, what how that metaphor is sitting with you in your life right now, like how your how your shape is, if it's how unexpected it is, how that how that's sitting with you right now.
0: Oh wow. That's a great question. Um, I feel like the shape is it's always changing it's fluctuating um i think the sh- it's that's the funny thing is we don't always we're not we don't always have to be happy about the shape or the the boundaries we might be frustrated by them i might be frustrated by them um the days that i wake up and i i'm in pain all day or i I'm just so fatigued I can't do anything. Um, but the the thing about living that way and it, it it's just so human. Um, I think just to 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 have things be unexpected, that's just the way life is. And um to come face to face with that is to come face to face with being a person and with being alive. And so that's just something that I, that I think about every single day.
1: Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week.